Hey everybody, it's Richard Harrison, Scott Lease with another exciting episode of the Surf and Sales Podcast brought to you by Lead411. If you're looking for lead with intent data and want a really cool slick plugin um, where you can figure out job change alerts and all kinds of great stuff with direct phone numbers, please check out Lead411. Uh, without further ado, I'm super excited for this. Um, I guess there is more ado. Is that on this show, we have two people who graduated from the University of Arizona and one from ASU. So uh, Hannah Duncan is my fellow Wildcat. Bear down, Hannah. Yes, uh, bear down. Uh, thanks for joining us. And, you know, Scott, uh, he, I know he's excited about this too. Yeah. So. Well, it take, it'll take two of you to match the strength of one Sun Devil. So. Right, exactly. It feels like a fair fight now. So, um, I'm just going to go, you know, Hannah, Hannah, for those who don't know, just to give us some background, she's the head of revenue operations at Popular Pays. Hannah, would you explain a little bit about your, the context of that? What is Popular Pays? So people understand where you're coming from and then, you know, certainly share some other places you, you've worked so that yeah. again, they understand all of that. And I'm, I'm super excited to dig in on revenue ops in general with you. Yeah, of course. So Popular Pays is an influencer marketing and content creation company. Um, we do both campaign-based work as well as um, we're a SaaS uh, subscription as well. Um, I've been there for just about a year as our head of revenue operations. Um, I started my career in sales as a BDR uh, and quickly grew into a sales operations role, which developed into a revenue operations role. And now here I am at Popular Pays. What? So that's the best place to start. Yeah. Sales ops was all the rage about, you know, for the last four or five years. And then in the last 18 months, revenue ops has really sort of popped into to everything. Uh, yeah. How do you see the difference? What's the difference between sales ops and revenue ops? Yeah, of course. Um, so when I started in sales operations, our whole focus was based on purely the sales team. Um, and we would still work with other departments, but it was never our priority. So when I was um, in the transition from a sales operations to a revenue operations role, our whole department was actually making that shift. Um, and with that, we took customer success in under our umbrella. Um, and we also um, worked a lot with marketing and really bridged the gap between all of the departments because we realized they were all, and I think a lot of people realize this, they all need the same data and they all need to talk together. Um, so it was really cool to, to be in that transition. Yeah, I'm going to dig in on that, on yeah. the same data and, um, you know, you're, you're all trying to sort of work together, right, or bridging the gap. Everybody yep. says it, but it's a good buzzword. Yeah. Specifically, what are the things you do to bridge the gaps? So I think it starts first with your tech stack, making sure everyone, if we can use similar software, um, we're using a similar tech stack and understand how they work together. Um, I think before um, it was very siloed. So like marketing does a lot with sales, but marketing was its own department. And I honestly didn't know anything about the marketing software and they didn't know enough about Salesforce. And so I think um, bridging the gap between those two things and learning more about the marketing software, how we can help, how we can get those, those integrations, um, making sure all of our data is centralized. Um, I think, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. Um, with customer success as well, I think um, we, at least at, in my previous role, I don't think we were using data enough with customer success. Um, I think we were just 
letting them um, work with the customers, but not really digging into all of that data. Um, and we were able to do that once we um, combined all of the departments under revenue operations. Let's go, let's go back a little bit in time, if you will. Um, I am, I've been on the record many, many times that sales ops, revenue ops is like my left hand to my right hand. Uh, it's the first hire that I want to make when I take on a, a head of sales role. Yeah. And I've had conversations with many, many VPs of sales, including some at fairly large organizations that I'm shocked and appalled don't have any kind of sales ops, rev ops support. Make the case around the ROI for starting early with having a revenue ops or sales ops, you know, team member, partner, right alongside that early head of sales. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So when I came on at Pop Pays, I was actually our first RevOps hire. Um, they had been going without for about three, three to four years before I came on board. And I think what you realize sorry, 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 to, sorry to interrupt. Did you hear that, Richard? Three to four years they were without RevOps. I, there's, no, there's no way. I would have been gone. Yeah. I would have already left. Yeah, it was. And the, the thing that comes with that is when you come in, it took me six months just to clean up the data, get us even like caught up to what I, what would be your starting ground if you started with a RevOps um, specialist. Um, and so, um, I, yeah, I think, I think the biggest case is you need to start with the right data and you need to start tracking things early because it is really hard to go back and there's a lot of things you're missing if you don't have someone specializing in it. Well, I think... And, I think and I, I want to ask, we're going to go yeah. into detail of what does clean data mean to you, right, in a, in a moment. Um, but I think, you know, Scott's point was, how do I even convince my CEO that I need an ops person, right? Mm -hmm. You want to call it sales ops, revenue ops, whatever. Yeah. It's, what do we go to the CEO who just sees sales as an expense? And how do we make that, you know, a dollarized ROI type? conversation for them to get them to buy in yeah I mean I think it all comes back to data and knowing what your, where your business is going and being able to forecast that data if you don't have someone in an analytical role like that especially in revenue operations you're just kind of shooting blind for lack of a better term um, you might have good sellers and bad um, sellers but you don't know why um, and you have no true way of forecasting the success of your business without understanding it first. And I think, um, yeah, re revenue operations is key for that to get a good understanding of your business. Yeah, but let's say I go, to, I say that to my CEO and, and my CEO turns around and says, yeah, but we're doing okay now, we're good enough, right? We're, we're, we're hitting the number. Or they say, hey, because I know this, hey Scott, that's what I hired you for, right? So again, I'm trying to sort of get to, what kinds of things would you be able to say, hey, if we had this ops person, here's the specific kind of reports I could run and here's how it would help us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think um, as far as like if we're trying to get to an ROI place, it's gonna come from making these small tweaks to your sales team's efficiency to produce more revenue. And so by having the reporting in Salesforce, by knowing what to analyze, um, you're able to make small adjustments to how your sales team is working that you can prove ROI with because those small, small tweaks will produce more revenue. Um, I think that's, that's a definitely a portion of it. 
So let me, now I'm going to dig into that other question and then I'll, I'll shut up and let Scott ask a question or two, but talk about, so it took six months to clean the data, right? Mm -hmm. What did dirty data look like and what does clean data look like? Yeah. So it basically starts from the lack of validation rules. And I don't know if you're, spe I'm speaking Salesforce for a second, but the lack of validation rules and the lack of required fields. And if you just trust your reps to input data um, in a lot of these open text fields, there's no way to use that data. It's basically unusable data. So um, from that, you have to go in and understand what do we need to require? What are our must have as far as data points? And then of those fields, can we streamline them? Do, can we bucket them in ways that are actually gonna be useful instead of just open text fields where you can type whatever you want? Um, so I think it starts with that. I think um, you need to have like your field history tracking on to make sure you're tracking the stage changes and, and all of those important keys. And if you don't have those set up, it's hard to go back and undo it. Um, a tool I use a lot is called Rollup Helper. Um, I'm a big fan of it. And so I use that a lot to help me pull those data points out. Um, but that would be to me is standardized data, knowing what to require. Um, a lot of organizations have too many fields uh, in their Salesforce instance. It's overwhelming. And so yeah. then yeah. as a sales rep, it's too hard because there's too many fields to fill out. You don't know what to fill out. So you kind of do everything half. Uh, you know, you fill out some, you leave some blank. It's, it's never good. Whereas if you know these five to 10 fields are exactly what I need and they need to be required and standardized, it's going to make it easier for sales and easier for RevOps to report on. Yeah, it's great. I amen on the, there's too many fields. That's such a problem. Really so um, I want to talk to you about one of the things that is the pushback that sales leaders get all the time and, and even revenue ops leaders are going to get. And that is, the objection of, well, how do I know our team is even going to use this tool and how do I know they're going to use it appropriately? So for example, let's say I want to bring in, uh, you know, sales law or bring in lead 411 or bring in gong or something like that. The objection is, is always, well, you know, we're going to have like 10% of the team using it and the other 90% won't even use it. So how do you, overcome that? What are your strategies as a revenue ops leader to ensure that the team members are utilizing the tools available to them at a, you know, appropriate scale? Yeah. So let's say, let's talk about like an outreach or a sales loft. So typically when you're bringing on one of those softwares, it is a big portion. It's probably your second largest uh, software purchase compared to Salesforce typically. Um, and so when you bring that on, you need to prove ROI in some way. So my best strategies are to figure out what our average deal size is. So if you know what your company's average deal size is, you can work with that sales tool. So you have to be the internal champion for it because you're the one who wants to bring on that tool. And you're going to use the sales rep at the company, say outreach, to help you sell that to your VP of sales or your CEO. Um, typically, they're going to come with their numbers on it increases meetings booked by X amount. They'll have that sort of data. Um, and all you need to do is prove that if we bring in one more deal because of this tool, we're ROI positive. Or if we bring in two more deals because of this tool, we're ROI positive. So I but, think that- But let's, but let's and I, I don't disagree with that, but I think where a lot of people get stuck is they say, well, that's great, Hannah, but I've seen many times where the sales reps end up doing whatever the heck they want and not utilizing the tool. So I agree if the tool is used properly, 
will be ROI positive on this outreach purchase. But yeah. so many reps go off the reservation and do whatever they want. How do, I, how do you, as the RevOps leader, make sure that my sales reps, as the sales leader, are using yeah. the tool? Yeah, and I think that's where it comes in between aligning with your sales management. So your sales management needs to be behind the decision too. Um, and you don't need to overwhelm them with software. I think what happens is people try to bring in too many tools because they think every tool they add to their tech staff is going to make them more successful as a business. When really, if you give your reps too many tools, they're not even going to know where to go. You need to, again, kind of like the Salesforce fields, limit it to what you really need. And you really need one tool for you know uh, engagement. So whether that's a sales often outreach, a group, whatever you want to use. Um, a tool to get data, so you need a, a contact provider, and then your Salesforce, the CRM, and those are your fundamental three. And you can add on to that, um, but I would always recommend keeping the sales stack as small as possible and then aligning on it with management because you need some way, the management needs some way to enforce it to the, to the sales reps, and you don't want to. What is, what is your, like, you don't have to name specific but what is your um, like ideal tech stack? You don't have to name a particular company, but like maybe just a category. So in the in the vein of thinking of um, let's keep our tech stack small so we don't overwhelm our team, which by the way I completely agree with. Um, what are those What are those essentials right now? Right, because everybody's kind of ripped out things that they think are nice to have right now. If if, if you if the three of us left and went and built our own company right now. What are, what are like the essential things that you want to put in the tech stack? Yeah, I think the fundamental three are always going to be our CRM, um, a sales enablement tool, and a data tool. So a, a somewhere to get prospect information, company information. If you have those three, you have a really good foundation. You can branch out beyond that. If you want to go more advanced with your reporting, you can get a data visualization tool. Um, but I would say if you have those three, you have a really good foundation, and then you can expand upon that based on your business model, your industry. It's going to vary by company. Yeah. I want to jump in on one thing. So you talked about, and you know, hey, we only need one or two deals to, to, make, to pay for this. So first of all, anybody who says that, stop saying it. It's singly the worst thing. If I'm going to spend $1,000 on something, I need a $10,000 return to cover my overhead, salaries, all those kinds of things. And so all sales reps need to stop saying it. It's, it's terrible. The second it's thing- salesy. It's very salesy, for sure. It's terrible. It's terrible. Like if people say, well, Richard, I only need to close one deal to pay for your training. I'm like, if you only close one deal for my training, it's like, then I suck. Like, yeah, then it terrible. is Very true. Right? Um, but here's how I would also shift that. I would say, hey, for every deal we get, the LTV is this. So in your LTV, particularly in SaaS, it needs to be three years at minimum two, otherwise you're never gonna grow. But if you've got a three year LTV, hey, that one deal is worth three X and you should be able to say, so one, hey, and so now I need to make sure that I get two more deals per month, per quarter, per year from every rep and the LTV of those two deals from those 20 people, you know, that's 40 deals. The LTV times three is X. That's our return. That's what you're looking for. And so anyway, I just, I had to, I've gotten really passionate about it and I just had to jump yeah. in. So sorry to, sorry to go off. No, I love that. 
how did you going back to, to you, to, to your background and stuff, how did you even decide you like being in sales or getting into the business world? Like, where did that come from for you? Yeah. So, I mean, at a very young age, I was in retail. So I was always selling something, whether it was leggings or, you know, jewelry, I was always selling something. And so I think from, it really transitioned well from retail into sales, to be honest. Um, I knew I wanted to work in tech just because I had an interest in it. Um, and so I ended up at ShipBob, um, which is a logistics company based out of Chicago. I started out in business development. Um, I was doing well, but I was only in a BDR role for three months um, because I quickly transitioned into a sales ops role. And was there something though that, that but what, what, what was the fire in your belly to want to do sales, <laughs> right? Like, um, like, what did your parents think you were going to be? What did they, what did they say? Oh, Hannah, you should do. So my background is I was a classical ballerina. I majored in dance in college. I was a professional dancer for a year after college. But I think what led me to like sales is my competitive aspect because you always had a goal. You always had someone to beat. And I don't know if everyone thinks about it like that, but that's how I thought about it. I wanted to be the top BDR. I didn't want to, you know, just be an, a BDR. And so I think my comp that competitive side of me really played nicely in, uh, into the, a sales role. You're the second professional ballerina dancer we've had on the podcast. Really? So, um, and your answers are similar. Really? Yeah. It's a new, a new channel to hire salespeople. So we look for, we look for salespeople with, um, you know, relatively, relatively unique, worthless degrees that have now moved into, into sales, right? Yeah. No offense to you wildcats, of course. Right. So, but no, we, we've discovered the, the special niche are people who were on the debate team and apparently ballerinas now, now that you've reconfirmed our hypothesis. So, okay. uh, why, 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 why did you make the move from sales to sales ops? Mm, good question. So I've always been really into numbers and really analytical. Um, and so when I was in a sales role, I hit the ground running with trying to figure out how many emails do I need to send to get to my goal? How many prospects do I need to prospect to hit my goal? And so I was doing all of these things. I was creating my own dashboards just to help myself out. And then suddenly I was doing well in sales um, and everyone's like, what are you doing? And I started sharing that knowledge with the BDRs on the team. I started doing reporting for other people all in a BDR role. And so it quickly transitioned from BDR to sales operations. Yeah. Because that's how I was hitting myself. Yeah, sounds like you're you're kind of a natural for that particular. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I think when I was selling, I was thinking in terms of all those numbers, but I had zero ability to display it in any kind of way, mm -hmm. right? Just to, to share it, you know, graphically or in any kind of reports with people, and I I hate building all that stuff i know exactly like what i want what i want yeah. to see i just need somebody like you to build all that stuff for yeah me. and that's what i love i'm like tell yeah. me what to build i'll build it um yeah it's had fun you just click around i mean salesforce is user-friendly trailblazer is amazing so you can teach yourself a lot and then of course once i got into a sales operations role i was surrounded with people who were like-minded so i learned a ton um just being in a department that everyone was as passionate about salesforce as i was yeah you are you in charge of like the vendor management for uh for your company to an are extent yes in those relationships what what are some some uh 
tricks of the trade to manage these, these vendors that you work with. So we already talked about like what your ideal stack would be, but you know, I, sometimes people say, well, it's hard to get a hold of the support team at mm -hmm. such and such company. You know, this features over here that was part of what we really wanted or maybe not working as good as possible or, you know, are you on any uh, kind of customer advisory boards? Is that a way to like kind of cheat the system and get, you know, better taken care of? What are, what are some tricks of the trade there to yeah. manage those relationships with the vendors that you work with? Yeah, totally. Um, I feel like what I typically do with these sort of relationships is I try to build strong rapport early on with the company because I know if I'm going to purchase that software, I'm going to need them as almost like a partner. I look at it more of a, as a partnership and um, I make sure it's clear. I'm a tough negotiator with these companies. Um, I make sure it's clear that there's going to be support throughout because if we're going to spend X, X amount of money on a software, it needs to be implemented properly. So I make sure that we have discussed implementation, discussed an account manager, all of this prior to signing any paperwork because that's when I lose my power, right? The second I sign paperwork, I lose my negotiation power. Um, and so I try to set all of that really clear at the beginning and also communicate with them a lot. I take longer to evaluate um, uh, software than most because I want to compare, I want to speak to competitors, I want to use what competitors have said in my negotiation process and I want to make sure it's really thoroughly vetted before bringing it on. And um, I've had success, success with that um, through the implementation process and adoption. But how do, then how do you decide when you've had enough? Meaning like, mm, this tool is not working for us. Mm -hmm. what, 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 are the, what are the markers or, or the, you know, what are, what are the alarms that go off where you're like, okay, we need to move on. We need to sever the ties with this particular piece of software, this piece of tech, this vendor, you know? Yeah, I think you're constantly evaluating it throughout the year. I think you know it's not the right tool for you if no one's using it, right? If you brought it on and you're super excited about it and your management is super excited about it, but no one's using it, it's not providing value. Um, so I, it's the worst thing to bring on a software that no one uses, but it's really educational um, because you're able to use that data and go, nope, we're not going to do it again. We're not going to renew it because no one's using it. So I brought on like dialers are one of the hardest things to get people to utilize us as a whole sales reps don't like making calls so if you bring on a dialer and your reps don't want to use it you either need to like work on the adoption process with them or figure out why for dialers the main reason they don't want to use it is they don't want to make calls so then you have to set the precedent with the management to set call targets etc but then if nobody was using it, doesn't that fall back on you as like the advocate, the one who purchased this particular tool? And, and if that's the case, which most organizations, somebody is probably going to put the blame on you for that. Yeah. Um, how do you then better vet the next time you go to purchase to ensure that you don't purchase this thing that turned out to be, you know, dead and, and relatively mm -hmm. worthless for you? I'm a huge advocate for pilots or trial periods um, where we uh, were uh, looking at Sales Navigator through LinkedIn. We did a three-month pilot with them. I was able to fully analyze adoption. Are these reps using it? They've, they've asked me for Sales Navigator because they think it's super important. Now, prove to me you want it. Are we going to use it? Let's, 
let's look at the data from that pilot. So if you can do a pilot or a trial period, of course you're gonna do that. It's the best way to, to vet it prior to sale. Now, not every um, company is gonna let you do it, but if you can, I would always recommend that. This is the point of the show where Richard talks and is on mute. It happens on every show. Oh. <laughs> How do you, it does. Um, it's that University of Arizona education we got, Hannah. Yeah. Um, so now I'm gonna ask you to, to, to describe your secret sauce, but so you, you're finally negotiating with the vendor and um, you're talking price. Do you always get a deal? Are you good enough to always get a deal? I am, I am known in popular pace for my negotiation skills. I have, I'm always getting something. Um, I'm a pretty tough negotiator with these companies. And I think it's because we're small. And if I'm going to bring them on board, I say, this is my budget. I can't go above it. There's, you know, other software out there if it's not going to work with us. And so, um, yes, I always get a deal. I've never paid full price for a software. Which is what I say all the time, right? Because yeah. nobody knows how to stick to their guns. Um, yeah. Have you, have you ever, have you ever um, said that and the client was like, you know, I appreciate that, Hannah, you know, that's, that's your price, I, I, that's your budget, you know, I wish you the best of luck. Has it ever happened and, and did you buy anyway? Um, you know, I would say usually they move. I mean, it's sad, but usually uh, if you get a very experienced uh, seller, maybe they won't, but usually they move. Um, that's just what I've noticed, um, especially when you're working with SaaS. I mean, it's the easiest thing to discount because, you know, it's SaaS. There's, it's 100% margin, theoretically. Um, and so, yeah, usually they move. And I, hope, I hope everybody heard that because that tells you that we're all giving up way too easy. 100%. Right? And, and, yeah. and I talk about this all the time. Now, granted, there's always opportunity where it's like, well, I got to close, I got to hit my deal, I got to get my number. It's, you know, it's a COVID world. We want to take deals right now, right? All that stuff matters. But you got to be willing to risk it a little bit. You got to be, your negotiation strength is only as strong as your willingness to walk away, which Hannah just demonstrated. She's willing to walk away and go look at somebody else if you don't give her what she wants. Yeah. Right? You've also got to be able to go back to someone like Hannah and say, hey, Hannah, you know what? We spent the last three months doing this. Totally get it, but are you really going to spend three months vetting a whole nother software? Because that's pretty expensive in my mind. And you got to be, you might need to wordsmith that a little bit, but you got to be willing to say something like that. Yeah. And and see what Hannah and Hannah might go. Yeah, I am. It it is worth it. So, um, but that's it's a really strong negotiation conversation, which is super deep where we don't always go. But um, I'm glad I'm glad you brought it up. So it's really good. Do you ever, strategically, do you ever wait till the 30th of the month to close the deal? Of course. I know. I mean, the thing is, if you have a background in sales, you know, like, right. and half the time they tell you, hey, it's our, our fiscal quarter is ending next month. I'm like, oh, great. You just beat me exactly when I'm going to start negotiating with you. Yeah. Um, totally. So, yeah, I think if you have a background in sales, you're a good negotiator. <laughs> I would disagree because really? all the people who are selling to you aren't very good negotiators. <laughs> True. Right. So this is, this is what jo Scott and I like to call job security. Um, yeah. So as much as I want people to, to, to get better, you know, don't everybody rush out and do it. Then I won't have a job. But um, what are, what are some other general advice you can give to people 
maybe let's talk about demos for a minute, right? You see a ridiculous amount of demos. Um, unless it's a super complex situation, demos to me seem terrible. What's a good demo look like to you? What's a bad demo? I think a good demo is when they actually take enough time to figure out what I really want. Because sometimes they just ask you those basic questions, which how many employees do you have? Why are you looking at software? But they don't take enough time to learn the pain points and learn like why, why I'm really looking. Um, and another thing is I feel like sometimes they rush you. They don't take time to learn your real timeline because I'm busy. Um, you know, I'm all over the place. We're a small company. I'm doing a lot of operations. I sometimes if they don't know my true timeline, they're going to rush me into it. And then I'm going to push, push off. I'm going to be like, I don't have time for this right now. So I think it's important to know someone's true timeline and respect it. In your opinion, how long do you think a, a good demo should go? Just pick a number, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. I mean, I would love if they were only 20 minutes, but I feel like they all end up going like 45 minutes. Um, they and could be that, quicker. And is that too long? I think anything over 30, I start to get a little bit like, come on, let's wrap it up. But I understand it depends on what software you're looking at. If it's more, if I have a lot of questions, I'm happy to keep talking to you. And if it's something I really want, I'm happy to keep talking with you. Um, but if it's a pretty standard software, it, 30 minutes is probably where I would cap out. So, and, and just out of curiosity of the demos you sit through, how many of them feel like demos and how many of them feel like product training? Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, you can tell the difference um, between someone who's like good in sales because they're kind of, they're helping envision, helping you envision yourself using that software where, you know, there are a lot of demos where it's just like, and this is how you do this. And I'm like, well, how would I use it? You know? So I think it's probably about 75% of the time it feels like a product demo and about 25% of the time. And it's usually that person who learned my needs um, and who helps me envision myself using the software. Right. By the way, I was not blowing a kiss at you. My wife is leaving. So for those who, who are watching, you know, I'm not you know, just being conscious of the world we're in. Um, yeah, I agree. You know, the one thing, Thank you. The, the interesting thing I always say to people too, is that, you know, when you test drive a car, you're not trying to program the radio stations. And if you're yeah. trying to program the radio stations in your demo, then you're doing too much. Right. Yeah. Your demo should help you elicit more pain. You should be able to show something. And instead of saying, does that make sense? Say, how does this compare to what you currently do? Because mm -hmm. that's what you need to know. Right. So yeah. I'll back off now, Scott. Yeah. I'm going to jump in. One, one thing that I'm curious about that I don't know if I've ever heard anybody really talk about is how do you grow and scale a revenue operations team? How do you go from one person running around with duct tape, putting everything together to a team that kind of rolls up under you and you've got a couple people focused on the sales side, a couple people focused on marketing, a couple people focused on CS and that type of thing. Have you had the opportunity to do that yet? And what is the right way to build and scale the revenue ops yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I haven't had the opportunity to do that yet. I'm still the person running around doing it all myself. I think if you are successful in a RevOps role um, and the company, ideally, if you're successful in the role, the company is going to also be doing well. As the company grows, the need, the demand is going to hit a point where I can't do it. If you want another report, I am already doing so many where the, the demand for 
the data and the demand for the reporting is has surpassed what you can do. And that's when the department's going to grow. And I think, um, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do as much as I can, but I would love to grow the team. Um, I would love to have a Salesforce admin underneath me. Um, and I think that will be coming. Um, but yeah, I maybe, think. Maybe you can expand on that. So you're not in the, that, you don't have that opportunity yet, but you're, yeah. you're going to get to that place. You want to get to that place. So you already name drop a Salesforce admin. Coincidentally, that's the second RevOps hire that always gets hired in, in my orgs. So we've got, you've got that one. What are some of the other roles? Because I, I really truly think that founders and CEOs and CFOs who have to you know, cut the checks for, for these people, I don't think they have a fucking clue what, what RevOps people do half the time, let alone why Hannah needs another version of her to do something else. Yeah. And, and I think sales leaders don't even often know how to articulate it. So you've got you, you're in there, you're doing everything and you're running RevOps. Okay. Now I need a Salesforce admin. What are, what are like the next two hires that you could see yourself bringing in and, and why? Help, help, help the other sales leaders out there articulate the need for these kind of roles. Yeah, so totally. It depends on your head of RevOps. So I'm more analytical. So if I wasn't more analytical, if I was more Salesforce oriented, which I'm both, but I'm, I love the uh, analytical side, I would probably hire a, like a sales analyst, um, someone to work with the data, someone to work with data visualization. Um, secondly, I think marketing operations, someone who understands the marketing software. So um, we have Pardot. I love it. Um, but I think you can expand on that tech stack. And I think someone who rolls up into revenue operations, but has an understanding of bridging the gap with marketing would be really important as well. I'm going to flip it. Scott, what advice are you going to give her to help her go get one? <laughs> to help her go get one. That's, it's all about how well the sales team is doing, to be perfectly yeah. honest with you. If yeah. the, the sales org and the CS org and the marketing org are, are growing, everything just becomes more complex and, and like Hannah's head's going to fall off her shoulders trying to do too much. So yeah. you have to section off pieces of the work that she does. And presumably if you've hired the right head of revenue operations, you've hired somebody who is also a leader and this person will be able to pull in and recruit this marketing ops person and this Salesforce admin that she's talking about and manage them and, you know, project manage them, motivate them, recruit them, hire them, all these kind of things, make sure things get done and identifies like, okay, where's the next, you know, hire that I'm going to have to make? Like, where's the sixth hire? At what point do I have to splinter off and have people who are only doing work with the sales team or the CS team and all of, and then you could, you start to pull in marketing or not yeah. marketing, excuse me, but uh, products into it potentially as well. And so you, you need somebody who's thinking strategically in that, in that particular way. And if you've hired somebody senior enough, hopefully um, they're able to grow, you know, kind of into that role. So these, those are the ways that somebody should be, should be thinking, both as a sales leader, me, yeah. and somebody like Hannah, who's a RevOps leader, right? And whether she reports to me in an organization or not, we need to be kind of thinking about these things in lockstep together. And, you know, again, everywhere I go, like my best friend in the org is whoever runs RevOps. Like that's my, that's my best pal, <laughs> you know? So you, this has been, this has been great. We've asked you a lot of 
pretty difficult questions, I think, and, and, and super tactical and questions that I get asked all the time. So really appreciate you taking the time with us and, and, and your thoughtful answers and everything. How can we be supportive and help you? Is there anything that we can do for you um, or anything that you're working on that you kind of want to spend a moment shouting out? Yeah, well, I just think um, with me, I'm so used to being on a team with like-minded people. So I'm, uh, at my previous company, I was always with other people in RevOps or um, who shared similar interests. And now that I am, you know, a team of one, I think the the best thing I can get from you guys is just um, to have you as a resource and have you to bounce ideas off of. So I'm not just talking talking to myself, um, if that makes sense. Done, absolutely yeah. done, done for sure. And as an added bonus, um, I'd be happy to introduce you to my two favorite people in the whole entire world who um, have worked with me and built RevOps teams with me at a couple companies. And, they, and I'm sure that they would talk to you and be a good resource for you as well. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. Appreciate it. No offense, Richard. Dude, I, I know where my strengths are. That's that's not my strength, right? <laughs> I meant more in the sense of my two favorite people in the world and you not being one of them. I already know that I'm one of your two. I'm one of your two personal favorite people in the world. <laughs> There's Janet, your wife, then me, and then your kids. I know. I know exactly where I sit. Well, you're not even in the top two business-wise, okay? I got I, it. I know. I'm, I'm on page five of four. It's all, that's right. You're on page, page five of the four-page will. That's right. exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Hannah, sorry if you have to put up with us. Um, Hilarious. You guys so, are fine. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for, for joining us. We, we do appreciate it. Um, I would absolutely defer to Scott um, on that, on who you should talk to about RevOps. He's definitely more dialed in there than I am. So I, I, I'm sure I know, I know a couple of people, but I think you should start with the two. I know the two, the two people he's speaking of. So. Awesome. But, you know, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and again, thanks to our sponsor, Lead411, um, for Lead Data Enrichment. Uh, looking for a cool plugin, uh, pull it off, pull information off LinkedIn and find the right triggers and intent buying signals. So check out Lead411 if you don't know. And we will see you again next time. Bye, everybody.